coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Thursday to you. Although, if uh, you're living and dying by the Atlanta Braves' fortunes or misfortunes, it may not be such a good day for you, but it may wind up being a good evening. First things first, uh, later in the show, Lamar White, good friend of mine from Louisiana. Back when I used to live there, he and I used to discuss politics all the time, usually on social media, and we didn't always agree on things, although we're both left of center. He of the Hillary camp, I of the Bernie camp. Nonetheless, we buried the hatchet. (laughs) Anyway, he is the uh, founder and publisher of the Bayou Brief. Fantastic web vlog if you like to learn all about Louisiana's history and political stories and cultural and more. The Bayou Brief is a fantastic follow. He also is working on a book entitled The Original Gangster, The American Saga of Carlos Marcelo. And there are New Orleans ties, ties to the JFK assassination, all that. Anyway, I wanted to get in touch with him because he knows where the bones are buried when it comes to Louisiana politics. And if you've been following, of course, there is the chance that a fellow by the name of Steve Scalise from Louisiana could be the next Speaker of the House. Problem is, Steve Scalise spoke at a white supremacist event, denied he did, then said, oh yeah, I just forgot I did, years later, calls himself David Duke without the baggage. But does he really lack the baggage? So anyway, that's a worthy conversation. Can't wait to have him on later in the show. First things first, I want to talk about the Palestinian-Israeli back and forth. I was watching over the weekend as the news was breaking about the attack. And by the way, the the casualties are more than 1,200 now just on the Israeli side. It's just utterly heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. And whether the information or misinformation sways you one way or the other, it's, it's just heartbreaking that civilian casualties are mounting up on both sides of this fight. Uh, Representative, State Representative Esther Panich, uh was one of the first tweets I saw about this. And uh, she questioned online whether some of the far-left members of the U.S. House, the squad, were celebrating the Hamas attack on Israel. She has since erased her social media post and apologized. Uh, She is, of course, the sole Jewish member of the Georgia General Assembly. And she has been targeted, as have many uh, Jewish American residents in the Atlanta suburbs, with anti-Semitic literature and graffiti along with demonstrations outside synagogues by white nationalists and Nazi sympathizers. She wanted to push through some legislation in the General Assembly's last session to codify a state definition uh, of anti-Semitism and some protections against anti-Semitism. That did not pass this time. However, I might imagine it fares better in the 2024 General Assembly. Nonetheless, on Saturday when she made that tweet... Representative Panich was obviously in an emotional state, and she admitted as such in a tweet that surfaced last night. She stated a few days ago, as word of the massacre in Israel was coming in, I took a cheap shot in a tweet. It was beneath me and the office I am honored and privileged to hold. I am sorry it has been deleted. Not going to lie, when I saw 
that tweet last night. It did my heart a lot of good. Um, when I first saw the targeted tweet on Saturday, I had the exact opposite reaction. My heart sank because I, I completely understand the raw emotions she and uh, many people in the Jewish faith had to have felt. Absolutely understood that. But it really felt like it was, as she put it, sort of beneath her in the office and really wasn't going to do anything substantively to combat terrorism in the Middle East or anti-Semitism there or anywhere, let alone bring us any closer to peace between Israel and Palestine. So not to brush the major story that is Israel and Palestine aside. I just feel like we've given this a lot of bandwidth in this show. I like to talk about local and state issues as much as possible. We gave a good deal of time yesterday to Mayor Andre Dickens and the Cop City saga. How about this? This uh, was something that just hit my radar Wednesday. A report produced by a group called Charge, the Coalition Hub for Advancing, Redistricting, and Grassroots Engagement. Charge. Uh, is a coalition uh, including Common Cause and Fair Count, the League of Women Voters, and the NAACP. They released their community redistricting report card, and it uh, was pretty grim for most of the southern states, Georgia getting a D. Uh, Georgia, one of 20 states throughout the country that got D or F grades. Only two states got A's. Uh, A minus, actually. That would be California and Massachusetts when it comes to the latest round of redistricting. When you go state by state, let's start with uh, Georgia, which received a D. And uh, the reasons cited being many opportunities for public comment were there, but the input was largely ignored. Shocker. Uh, Community of interest maps and unity maps were not considered lack of transparency in decision-making, and they even took it a local step further, giving Georgia a local grade of F, citing state overreach of local elected officials. Conservatives just, they slay me. They don't like federal overreach, but they're perfectly okay with state overreach as long as they're in charge of the state. Um, Let's see, this... uh, says, with the 2019 passage of SB 177, all local redistricting legislation must go through the state legislature uh, through their delegation in Georgia, which I absolutely hate. Uh, in key urban metro areas, there were attempts by the state legislative delegation to usurp local authorities' efforts for a more fair and transparent process to force implementation of their own maps. This received the most attention, we know this, because we've had Jerrica Richardson on, who has been targeted for a Erasure from the Cobb County Board of Edu- uh, the Cobb County Commission. Uh, we've noted that in Cobb, it's also happened in Augusta, Richmond County, Athens, Clark County, and Gwinnett Counties. All of those uh, blue, mostly urban districts. The uh, local grade also cited a lack of transparency and rushed efforts. Uh, one advocate described the county level process as an quote onslaught and ambush. Almost all local maps passed during the legislative session for the 159 counties in Georgia. Seriously, how does the General Assembly handle all 159 counties? That's just insane. This should be be handled at the local level, right? Uh, Anyway, all all local maps passed during the session for the 159 counties in Georgia without public local hearings and without the public seeing the maps. 
the third reason cited for the F at the local level, advocacy community stretched thin. Given the sheer number of counties in Georgia, and really there are too many, uh, and the speed with which local maps were passed, it was difficult for the advocacy community to catch all local redistricting issues. I would say that's probably by design. Uh, I thought it would be interesting to mention that Alabama, by the way, got a local grade of B, but on the overall state level, they got an overall state grade of F as well. And we know that the uh, Supreme Court and uh, uh, re, uh, the federal level courts threw out their congressional map seeking a redraw. When you go to South Carolina, which is in court now, they get the overall state grade of D+, plus, uh, citing racial gerrymandering and congressional redistricting. And by the way, my guest, Lamar White, who we'll have on in the second half of the show, is all about Louisiana politics, but he also now just moved to South Carolina, and so he's following the South Carolina and the Louisiana congressional maps uh, pretty pretty heavily. And uh, I would uh, gather to guess we'll talk about racial gerrymandering. Also, uh, insufficient public input cited in South Carolina. Over to Louisiana. Louisiana got a D-minus, disenfranchisement of black voters cited, disregard of communities of interest, and in-person redistricting events provided some opportunities for feedback uh, the state uh, allowing for some in-person feedback for uh, the public in most major cities to participate and provide testimony on communities of interest. So they got a D, only a D minus, because they did provide a little bit of input. It didn't seem like a lot of that input went into the map. However, I th- I, I don't know. I'm I'm a, I'm a map nerd. I'm not going to lie to you. I loathe gerrymandering. I don't care if the left or the right's in charge of a state house or congress uh, 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 governor's office i absolutely loathe gerrymandering it should be done away with it is anti small d democratic and disenfranchises voters if you're like me and you want to know how this breaks out by party partisanship by party control well 18 of the 20 states that got d or worse grades are red states. The only two that were not red states that got failing grades were New York getting a D and Illinois getting an F. The other 18 red states. And and when I say red states, I don't mean that that they're necessarily Republican majority states. They're just states controlled by Republican majorities. Like Georgia, very much a swing state. Very much a purple. Florida used to be very much a swing state, very much a purple state. Virginia, swing state, a bluish, purpley swing state. Uh, Virginia, by the way, the one Southern, the one Confederate state uh, of the batch that got a C or better grade. So kudos, Virginia. I mean, C's get degrees, right? (laughs) Now, when you couple that with the states since 2020 that have enacted new laws uh, restricting voting access, states like Georgia, Florida, Arkansas, Kentucky, Oklahoma, tapping when you hear a blue state, Iowa, Indiana, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, no, no blue states, Alabama, Louisiana, South Carolina, North Carolina, Texas, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, Kansas, you start to put together the picture here. The right leans on gerrymandering and restricting voting access to protect the gerrymander and actually work in tandem with the gerrymander to ensure that not only 
is their congressional and their state legislative representation tilted in their favor, but that also the restriction to the ballot box benefits their team when statewide, think gubernatorial, lieutenant governors, attorney generals, secretary of states, uh, offices are up for grabs as well. I'll put all of this in the show notes. I don't know. If you're not wonky like me, you don't, may not care, but I like sharing all that uh, in uh, today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. All right, I know I said I didn't want to talk too much about Israel-Hamas. However, there is a breaking headline that I think uh, is pretty important to discuss. We'll do that after the break. This is kind of one of those things you'll want to take with you, a talking point when you've got to combat your uh, drunk uncle hanging out watching football this weekend or maybe the Braves tonight. You can just say, no, that's actually not true. I'll, I'll tell you what that is when we return. And my guest later this show, Lamar White from the Bayou Brief, will discuss Steve Scalise. When we return on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show Thursday. Big game tonight. If the Braves are going to win the World Series, they have to win tonight first. And then, uh, I believe Saturday would be game five here in Atlanta. Got to win those or else nothing else matters. All those records they set, this won't mean a thing if they can't get past the dastardly Philadelphia Phillies, their fans mocking the chop. I know some people are iffy about the chop. I kind of get it, but I also kind of get where the entire moniker pays homage instead of his derogatory. I don't know. Anyway, they mock the chop. You got Bryce Harper staring down our shortstop who made a statement in the clubhouse that he didn't think was going to get reported on because why would it? And yet it did. And everything's amplified in the playoffs and whatever. Um, our, our guy Spencer Strider's on the mound tonight, though. I feel pretty good about that. Uh, anyway, here's what else I feel pretty good about. One of the chief talking points from the right, almost from the moment there was bloodshed in Israel, was uh, in reference to the freeing up of $6 billion in humanitarian aid uh, being made available again to Iranians uh, in exchange for the swap of prisoners, American prisoners, right? Well, this just dropped around uh, 2.20 uh, at the Washington Post. Jeff Stein, Jacob Bogage reporting that the U.S. and Qatar have agreed to stop Iran from tapping into the $6 billion fund after the Hamas attack. Here's the article. U.S. officials and the Qatari government have agreed to stop Iran from accessing a $6 billion account for humanitarian assistance in light of Hamas attack on Israel. Deputy, easy for me to say, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiamo told House Democrats on Thursday, according to two people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe the private remarks. More from the article. I'll get this in the show notes today as well at ronshowatl.com. Coming just a few weeks after the U.S. and Iran announced a deal on the money, the decision not to permit access could have major geopolitical reverberations with the Biden administration undercutting negotiations with Tehran that took years to finalize. Biden aides had rejected the unfounded accusation that funds not yet released had fueled the Hamas attack, but they still faced a bipartisan backlash on Capitol Hill aimed at preventing the money from going to Iran. The move reflects just how rapidly the Hamas massacre in Israel has reshaped U.S. relations in the region. As Israel pummels Gaza in retaliation, the Biden administration has reaffirmed its commitment to its allies with Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken traveling to Israel in a show of support. And by the way, Blinken has to go there 
I mean, that's you can't get much high level than the Secretary of State. He has to go there because Republican Senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, blocking appointments like a U.S. ambassador to Israel. Tommy, dude. Now, I give you this information not because I'm a journalist. I am not. Uh, I give you this information because I like to give you facts and rebuttals to thin talking points that you're going to get from your verbose aunt or uncle who is magnified that you may have to hang out with amongst family members and friends tonight while watching the Braves beat the Phillies. I'm saying six to three, seven to three, something along those lines. I just want you to be as uh, on top of your game as is possible. So I like giving you this information. I think that's a positive step. And I was kind of quietly wondering all along, well, if they haven't accessed the money yet, we can still freeze it, right? It's not as simple as you or I calling Wells Fargo and saying, hey, our debit card's missing. Can you freeze it? And by the way, I think they have an app for that now, or you can do that on there. Anyway, <laughs> not going to advertise for Wells Fargo. They don't, they're not giving me no money yet, by the way, if you'd like to advertise. 404-919-2725. Ron at ronshowatl.com. No, it's just not as easy as you or I just, you know, pausing our, our debit card. Uh, there are international negotiations and back-channel deals that have to be made to freeze accounts like that. But that's a positive step. That is absolutely the right thing to do. And I cannot wait for all of those on the right who have been tweeting since Saturday about, what about the $6 billion? I cannot wait for them to applaud this. <laughs> you know that's not going to happen. Uh, real quick, before we go to break, I want to pass along what I think is some fantastic news. Uh, David uh, Arrow and Rosanna Hughes at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting that Harrison Olvey's killer has been arrested. Uh, they filed a story at the AJC. I'll include it in today's show notes, ronchoetl.com, that uh, the family is relieved, obviously cannot bring back Harrison, but uh, relieved that uh, Harrison's killer has been uh, arrested. You may remember uh, the September shooting death of Harrison Alvey, who was working as a valet in Buckhead. Um, he interrupted a carjacking, and this fella, who apparently, allegedly, uh, was caught uh, open fire after this valet spotted him attempting to break into a truck at a Longhorn Steakhouse in uptown Atlanta, the area known as Lindbergh City Center. So the arrest was of Randy King, age 22, booked into the Fulton County Jail on a charge of murder, which ended a search that saw him placed on the Atlanta Police Department's most wanted list. Heartbreaking in that Harrison had just graduated from Kennesaw State University, had his entire career and life ahead of him, and now uh, a grieving family is left behind to deal with that sudden and tragic loss. I'm hoping that Mr. King gets everything that the book has in it to throw at him. I'm not a big death penalty guy. I'd like his existence to be as awful and barely livable as is possible. Okay, like many of you, we just sit here and marvel at the utter dysfunction of the Republican House Conference as they sort of begrudgingly got behind in a slight majority vote to move forward with Steve Scalise as the nominee for Speaker of the House by like a 14-vote margin, like a 113-99, 14-vote margin in the House. Oh, by the way, George Santos now <laughs> has charges against him, so I don't know how active he's going to be in all this. Uh, how much of a horse trader he will be. However, 
it doesn't look like Steve Scalise is going to have the votes to become Speaker of the House. Jim Jordan, of course, didn't get enough votes even in the conference to beat Steve Scalise, and yet he's dickering and politicking. We had uh, the former Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, say initially this week, well, maybe I'll consider, and then he said, no, take me off the... Utter dysfunction in the GOP House conference. That being said, if Steve Scalise is to be the Speaker of the House, a couple of firsts. I don't actually know that one of them is a first, but it's pretty unique territory that he's wading into here. He would be the first House Speaker from the state of Louisiana, which is pretty surprising because that is a political state. He would be the first white supremacist House Speaker in quite a while. Definitely in this century, and for the second half of the 20th century, you would presume. My guest next, Lamar White, he is founder and writer at the Bayou Brief, also authoring the forthcoming book, The Original Gangster, The American Saga of Carlos Marcello. We have him next on The Rancho. When we return on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Thursday. Gloomy gray skies throughout Atlanta, kind of matching the mood after that baseball game last night. But I'm trying to tell the fanatics, don't sweat this. We got Strider on the mound tonight. He'll pull us back to Atlanta for game five, and then all bets are off. I am joined, and I'm glad to be joined, by my friend from central Louisiana. His name is Lamar White, founder, publisher of The Bayou Brief, also author of the book, The Original Gangster, The American Saga of Carlos Marcelo. Lamar, thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate that. Hey, Ron, thanks for having me. Speaking of gangsters, uh, we're on the verge, maybe, perhaps, could be, of having <laughs> a Speaker of the House from Louisiana. And I'm kind of stunned that in Louisiana's storied political history that uh, Steve Scalise would be the first Speaker of the House from that state. It is kind of stunning. Uh, it's also somewhat ironic that there was, in the er- in the early 90s, there was an opportunity for um Bob Livingston of the same exact district becomes to send the Speaker of the House, uh, and he was caught having an extramarital affair, and that actually uh, precipitated the rise of Newt Gingrich. Uh, so irony, uh, <laughs> it, yes. So Scalise is now occupying that that same um, seat, and uh, had, had been serving as a majority slash minority whip for mm-hmm. several years, and had positioned himself. Uh, you know, he's at right, you know, the right position to uh, to climb into power. Um, so I guess we'll see. It doesn't, it, it, you know, like I said, it's pretty chaotic right now. And the news continues to change by the hour. So, well, as we watch this, he, he can only have, I think, four defectors from the GOP. And right now, there are five on record as saying that they're not going to vote for him and or they're going to vote for Jim Jordan. Uh, so, right. you know, there, there's going to be some horse trading, I, I would assume. But he's kind of flown under the radar uh, the last decade or so after, what was it, nine was it nine years ago or so that you, you exposed yeah. that he had attended a white supremacist event? And That's right. Uh, in 2000, actually, late 2014, uh, December 28th. So the news really didn't start, uh, it didn't really trickle out nationally until um, January 1st of 2015. Uh, but yeah, I broke a story about Scalise as a then a two-term state representative uh, in Louisiana attending um, a quote international conference, a white supremacist conference, uh, put on by an organization affiliated with David Duke, the notorious uh, former KKK Grand Wizard and uh, neo-Nazi, and um, believe it or not, a very popular one-time very popular mm-hmm. uh, political figure in the great state of Louisiana. Right. 
So, um, he, he, and, and Scalise has always sort of bragged that he thinks of himself as David Duke without the baggage. Yeah, Scalise, when he ran for Congress, uh, it, it initially did this whole media tour. He he did tell a local journalist, Stephanie Grace, that uh, he's David Duke. With the, the quote was, "He's I'm David Duke without the baggage." Um, you know what? It, 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 it's not too far off. I mean, uh, David Duke in 1991, when he ran for governor of Louisiana, uh, he cleaned himself up. He traded his you know robes for a suit. He got a haircut <laughs> and uh, some some plastic surgery. He called himself a born again Christian. Uh, but during those debates with Edwin Edwards. He he repeated and maybe debuted a lot of the talking points and uh, policy positions that we now see um, as pretty much mainstream Republican ideology. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's he actually is not too far off. Duke Duke in many ways presaged um, a, a larger uh, ideological shift uh, among the far right, uh, and was and, and like I said was immensely popular, particularly among white voters in Louisiana, uh, the majority of whom uh, supported Duke both in 1990 when he ran for U.S. Senate, uh, something like 60% of white voters supported Duke. And then in 1991, when he ran for governor, he received about 55% of white voters. It's interesting that you point that out because when you think about it, the Southern strategy was about 16 years old or so by the time that David Duke ascended and was starting to use some of that dog whistle terminology now that is just Mm -hmm among the rank and file in the GOP today. Uh, that's that's an interesting tidbit. So Scalise initially denied your story. Yeah, well, uh, initially he claimed, well, yes, initially his office issued a flat-out denial, and um, the, the person responsible, so the organization founded and associated by David Duke, David Duke actually teleconferenced in, this is 2002, so uh, I'm not sure, how well the great the technology was, but right. he teleconference in from Russia. Mm. So he wasn't physically present for this conference. It was actually hosted by Duke's campaign, a uh, former campaign manager and sort of top aide, uh, uh, someone really well known and affiliated with Duke from the very beginning, a guy named Kenny Knight. Mm. Uh, Kenny Knight, uh, currently incarcerated in federal the federal penitentiary for operating an illegal pill mill, <laughs> an oxycontin pill mill. Uh, had uh, also told the Times-Picune that Scalise did not attend this event, that there was another event, a neighborhood association event right. that Knight hosted at the same hotel at the same day. Uh, just, just you know, it, it turns out, obviously, this was just a, a bunch of bunk. Scalise, to his credit, um, did eventually, and it, it, probably two days later, uh, fess up and it acknowledged his attendance. He claimed that he had completely forgotten about the event. Mm. and which As one would when they accidentally show up at a white supremacist rally. Yeah, I'm not sure how you miss the merch <laughs> tent and all the people in, you know. <laughs> oh, man. That's but funny. yeah, it does beg the question, like, how do you, are you so used to attending events like this that you forgot this particular one? Um, and, uh, you know, then he also he also asserted that if he had attended, well, he did attend. He must have spoken about um, this this particular tax plan that had been uh, floating around and was about to be voted on as a constitutional amendment. Mm. Um, yes, he did. In fact, later that year, uh, go on a, a sort of a road, uh, you know, a statewide road tour. Um, but it, but the timing doesn't add up. So it, the, the the truth is that we actually really don't know why. 
he decided to accept their invitations, uh, the invitation. But we do know that Kenny Knight, David Duke's aide de camp, was someone very well known in this particular area of Louisiana, uh, Steve Scalise's backyard, and that Scalise and, and Knight were friendly. And uh, so the claim of ignorance is a hollow one to anyone that knows the nuances and the peculiarities of Jefferson Parish politics. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate, too, this happened in 2002, because I think we were all using Motorola flip phones without good video camera technology, so there's not any video of this. But I'm also now picturing this merch tent inside a white supremacist. I mean, are the the glow sticks, like, cross-shaped, or how does this work? (laughs) You know, I'm just kind of curious about it. Sure. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the, the, the truth is that this event uh, was covered by the uh, local press before um, it even began. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chicago Cubs were supposed to stay in that hotel. I forgot exactly why, because uh, New Orleans doesn't have a professional uh, baseball team, but yeah. there was some sort of event that was happening, a sports sports event, and a major league team decided not to stay at this hotel because they had discovered that, in fact, a large contingent of white supremacists from around the entire world were going to be there at the same time. Um, a conservative columnist, a uh, local well-known conservative columnist named Jeff Cruer wrote, wrote a column about this uh, conference being held about a week before. So it wasn't a surprise that this was going on. It wasn't unknown to Scalise. This was not a youthful mistake or indiscretion or can't be chalked up to night political naivete. He was 35, almost 36 years old, was at the end of his second term in the Louisiana State Legislature and about to run for a third. Um, And a known entity, someone who was uh, uh, had already established himself as being a political operator and uh, with a savvy machine. Um, So, yeah, this is a a mature uh, adult man making a deliberate decision. Yeah to speak before a conference of white supremacists. 35 years of age, old enough to run for president, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. So, I mean, I, yeah. That's right. You, you can't just chalk that up for, oh, I walked into the wrong room. Right, right. Uh, we're, right. we're with Lamar White, who is the founder and publisher of the Bayou Brief. And uh, you still contribute with the Daily Beast from time to time? Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, whenever, there's, whenever they pitch me on something good, yeah. I, I do. Um, my last piece was about this, just another one of those uh, far right politicians from Louisiana, Go and now it. actually now I'm in South Carolina, so I'm hoping to discover a new crop of uh, characters here. Well, um, you'll find them for sure. I lived there for 11 years. I can point them out to you, and we'll uh, we'll talk about that yeah. off the air. I, you know, speaking of South Carolina, they're going through the uh, redistricting scenario, and I, I think Louisiana is probably uh, in line for that as well. Yeah. What absolutely. are you, What are your thoughts on both of those? You know, it's funny, actually, I'm, I moved to uh, represent, represent Nancy Mace's district, oh. and Nancy Mace is Isn't like the only charm? person. Yeah, and, and she's the only, she, she has declared herself, that, declared that she's not going to support Scalise. And the reason is, uh, is that she claims she, she just discovered my story about him attending the white supremacist There you conference. go, all right. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny. I'm one of her constituents, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, what was the question again? Uh, so, uh, what your your thoughts on the the South Carolina redistricting, uh, redistricting case and and, yes. and how you think that might play out for Louisiana if and when they come? Well, up? I mean, I know, yeah, I know that um, in Louisiana and just like the state of Alabama, uh, the legislature approved um, a map uh, that was 
clearly uh, in violation of the law. Mm. And and the percentages and the, the, the proportion of the black population in both Alabama and in um, Louisiana is, uh, I think, I think much higher than it is in South Carolina. In Louisiana, something like 34% of the population is African American. Mm. Um, in Alabama, I think it's more like 20 something. 27 percent. Like yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and in Louisiana, of course, only one of the six congressional districts uh, is is occupied by an African American, and I think it's about the same the same in in Alabama. There may be a few more districts, but anyway, the point is. Um, both states, Republican majority legislatures passed these, you know, obviously unconstitutional or legal um, maps. The Supreme Court decided this last term, to many people's surprise, that Alabama's maps um, were, you know, in violation of federal law. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see what happens in both states, in, in all three states. Um there, there is a tendency, as we saw in Alabama, for these Republican lawmakers to uh, dig in their heels, and uh, you know, even though the Supreme Court ruled against them, to just offer as a substitute another slightly different but equally as um, illegal iteration mm-hmm. of the same re- type of redistricting. I, frankly, redistricting has, you know, the way it's been, the way districts are gerrymandered is, uh, with respect to race, in particular in the Deep South, uh, has uh, it's just a, it's just an extension of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. and has really um, undermined our our democracy and the legitimacy of our government. What I might add uh, in the South Carolina case is that there's always been, and again, I lived there eleven years. There's always been these whispers yeah. on the left, even that that Jim Clyburn isn't all that unhappy with the way the maps get drawn because his district mm-hmm. is super duper safe, but. If right. there was even just a little bit of sacrifice of his district, it might make the one you're in, for example, that Joe Cunningham once held, uh, a, a bit more of a feasible, uh, winnable district for somebody else uh, in the Democratic Party. Well, yeah, you know, this is the same thing that we hear a lot, or at least I had heard a lot in Louisiana as well with, I think they call it the Unholy Alliance, you know, incumbent, incumbent uh, black lawmakers who make a deal with, Republic, white Republicans to spare their district mm-hmm. from any major changes in exchange for uh, the concession being that, you know, there won't be another black district or mm-hmm. or there will be fewer, mm-hmm. I should say. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a common, I think, a common story. Um, I don't know enough about Clyburn's uh, maneuvering uh, with respect to redistricting to comment one way or another. Right. But I will say that I, this is a familiar narrative and it would not surprise me at all if, if there was some validity to it. Well, I get just a few more minutes with you here. What's the uh, new project that you're working on and how can folks uh, help out with that if, uh, if, you, uh, if you indeed uh, need that? Yeah. So um, I've been writing a book for about three years about Carlos Marcello, he was the longtime um, reputed, quote-unquote reputed, Mm. uh, boss of the New Orleans Mafia. Uh, Served as boss probably for close to 50 years, depending on who who you trust about these dates. Um, And lived a a really fascinating, um, I think, underappreciated story. Um, One in which, you know, among other things, uh, he is... uh, According to many, uh, potentially responsible for orchestrating the assassination of President Kennedy. Mm. Um, he also um, uh, broke ground 
sort of unintentionally, unwittingly, in establishing uh, Fifth Amendment rights, uh, refining the Fifth Amendment rights uh, of people being uh, testifying before Congress. Uh, he is the and remains the um, the longest and most expensive deportation case in American history. Uh, the United States government eventually kidnapped him and deported him to Guatemala. Oh my God. Uh, uh, and he spent two months in Guatemala, including a couple of weeks hiking through the Guatemalan wilderness and jungles into El Salvador and then Honduras. He snuck back into the United States. I know how he came back. Uh, I was able to figure this out, um, but and then I have to wait for the book for that. Mm. But the United States government never determined how he actually got back into the country. So, but it, it's a larger story too about the American experience and what it means to be an American. It, because he lived from 1910 to 1993, it spans the entire, almost the entirety of the 20th century. So, it also becomes a story about 20th century New Orleans, which is a very per peculiar, particular uh, story, um, and and it kind of explains a lot about where the city of New Orleans is today and why it is where it is today. Uh, fascinating figure and people want to check out my um you know I've, I've released a little bit of it there's some great pictures and so, some content on a website i just started uh carlosmarcello.org mm -hmm. um and the name of the, the forking title of the book and i think it will be ultimately the name is uh the original gangster uh the american saga of carlos marcello and it's intentionally called american saga because he i believe is represents the American dream in many ways and is in, in some ways no different than the, the people behind the Boston tea party. Mm. Um, uh, so uh, I think that people will enjoy it. It's one of the last, I think maybe the last uh, significant mafia figure whose story has never been told in, in, in his prime is probably the most popular or maybe the second or third most well-known mafiosi in, in the country. Looking forward to that book coming out. And of course, we got to see the film adaptation when it comes out to that. Sounds that's like that's what everyone's saying. Everyone's saying it's a film or, or an HBO series yes, or something like that. That's what I was thinking, a yeah. Max series or something like that. All right. We'll, yeah. we'll get that link and the Bayou Brief link and your Patreon as well uh, at, uh, in our show you. notes today at ronshowatl.com. Lamar White, founder and writer at the Bayou Brief. Man, thanks for the time today. It's good catching up with you, buddy. Yeah, you too. You take care. Thank you so much for having me on. One more segment of The Ron Show, and yesterday was National Coming Out Day, and unfortunately my show was jam-packed, and I didn't get to give you my coming out story, and uh, I thought I'd share it with you. Sorry it's a day late, but I thought it'd be worthy of sharing. Anyway, it is Pride Week in the city of Atlanta. We hold our pride in October because it's too damn hot in June, and uh, so Pride Weekend coming up. So why not discuss uh, my coming out story on National Coming Out or a day after National Coming Out Day when the Ron Show returns on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for Thursday. Let me just go ahead and get this out of the way. Braves win tonight, 6-3, to three, right? Come back home for Game 5. Max Fried will lock them down and we'll just move on to take on Arizona. So yesterday was National Coming Out Day. This is Pride Week in the city of Atlanta. Atlanta Pride moved to October some years ago because we realized it's hot as hell here in June during National Pride Month. Yeah. And hanging out in Piedmont Park for three days? Ooh, no thanks. Nonetheless, uh, yesterday being National Coming Out Day, I didn't get the chance to, because my show was pretty jam-packed, to share my coming out story. And I may have done this last year on National Coming Out Day. Can't quite remember. 
but I decided to go ahead and share with you my coming out story. You see, I was 23 years old, morning radio host at the pop top 40 station in my hometown of Augusta, Georgia. Can you imagine the pressure of being a closeted pseudo local celebrity? Being on the top 40 radio station morning show at that time, it was, it was literally my show, Ron Roberts in the morning. Uh, I don't remember if my co-host was there yet or not, so it may have been Ron and McKenzie. Nonetheless, I was 23 years of age uh, in the closet in Augusta, Georgia, deeply in the conservative South. And I remember as a kid when uh, a local television anchor lost his job just on the rumor of him having an illicit relationship with a politician. Nobody ever proved that, but he lost his job because the rumor sank his career. That man was married with kids, former UGA football player. He was a big deal. And he lost his job over the rumor. So I was very much in the closet. I was also very much in love with someone that I had met who was uh, serving in the U.S. Army. Of course, Augusta's right by Fort Gordon. And uh, we were dating for a little while. Actually, he was stationed somewhere else, uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, as a matter of fact. And so communication was back in, was this 1997? Pretty sparse. Uh, There weren't much in the way of cell phones. I think we did have, yeah, we had cell phones. But for the most part, our mobile bills weren't quite what they are now, and our devices weren't as portable and usable as they are now. So uh, we were using calling cards that were attached to your landline phone bill. And because I was so in love with this guy, I let him use my landline to stay in touch with me while he was on the road. Only I found out a few months into his being on the road, that my gut was telling me communication is getting a little more sparse. It's getting a little more difficult to to get in touch with this guy. And I found out why. He had been seeing someone else and actually using my calling card to stay in touch with that other person while out and about on the road in the military. Yeah, it was a a big deal. It was pretty gut-wrenching, and I was heartbroken. So much so that I was bedridden for like three days. I just couldn't get up out of bed. I was so depressed. And my mom, my biggest fan, of course, living in Augusta as well, or in the market, was listening to my show every day. And when she noticed that I was gone for one day, okay, maybe just a little under the weather, second day, she'd call and check. I'm just not feeling well. I couldn't tell her. And on the third day, all right, something's up. So she sent my dad. She dispatched my dad to my house to check on me. The man that I thought would be the last man I would ever come out to wound up being the first because I was just at rock bottom and he came over, he could tell something was bothering me and I don't remember the specifics, but he finally just signaled to me, like, whatever it is, you can tell me, going to love you nonetheless, no matter what it is. And I did tell him and Nothing changed about our relationship. This is the same dad that used to drag me into the woods when I was a kid to go hunting. He's a big deer hunter. I mean, not so much. But I went because I was interested. I wanted to have that sort of bond with my dad. He and I are still to this day huge UGA football fans, Falcons fans. We text during the football games, Braves games too. Went to a lot of those. I took him to the first uh, tour of Turner Field. We went to the Sugar Bowl when I lived in Louisiana. Just all of that. And... That's my coming out story. The last person in my family I thought I would ever tell wound up being my first. 
And I'm fortunate. I realize that for a lot of folks, it wasn't quite as easy or didn't work out quite as well. And there are probably still kids today who are concerned about coming out to their family members for various reasons, religious or whatever. So I'm not going to just sit here and blindly say, oh, it'll be okay. Just do it anyway. I'm saying you'll know the right time. The folks that'll love you will let you know when it's the right time, even if you're just paying attention to the clues. Anyway, that's my belated National Coming Out Day story. Today's show notes, past episodes, you can find them at ronshowatl.com. We're here weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, and then afterwards, wherever you podcast. Have yourselves a good one. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.